Welcome to this space. My name is Emily and I'm on the team at Church of Hope. Whether you regularly attend or this is your first time in this space, we're so glad you are here. Understand this, this broadcast is streamed around the world for free. You can make a difference partnering with people to discover hope in Christ, sharing hope across every continent by giving at hopeinocala.com. I wanna welcome our guest speaker and invite us to lean in as God's word is taught to see what God has in store for each of us today. I know this to be true. No matter what you and I face in life, when our hope is rooted in Christ, God is with you, God is in you, and God is for you. In Christ, we have hope. That was awesome. Well, good morning, Church of Hope. It's great to see you guys. The, the latter service, I know you guys are all nice and awake and caffeinated and ready to go. This is awesome. Uh, as Pastor Mark shared, my name is Bob Wheatley. I currently live in Nashville, Tennessee, and just for a point of clarity, the answer to your question is no. I am not a Tennessee volunteer. <laughs> just wanna be clear. We got, we got applauses. I flew into Gainesville on Friday and I started seeing all the blue and orange and gators. It's like, maybe a PSA would be worthwhile. I am, as they say, a person of peace. So I think we're gonna get along just fine. My sermon for this morning is titled The Glorious Gospel Story. The Glorious Gospel Story. And truth be told, it's a simple sermon. It really is. I have one goal for today. My goal is that by the time you leave, you perfectly understand the gospel. Said differently, my goal is that you would understand the story that you're living. Because the truth is, humans are a storytelling species. We love stories. That's how we communicate with one another. That's how we connect with one another. For example, let's say I was to think of a movie. And that movie takes place, quote, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I'm hearing laughs. You guys immediately know the story I'm talking about. Likewise, if we have some classic novels, classical fiction readers, if you saw somebody sitting on a park bench, they're kind of pondering their life, and you hear them say, to be or not to be, you'd probably respond with, well, that is the question, right? I know we have some Shakespeare readers in here. And even in the world of music, with songs, right? I live in Nashville, quote, Music City. There's a lot of singers, songwriters. Songs are being written all the time. So let's just pretend that I'm writing a song. I feel really good about my first two lines, kind of stuck on the third. If you guys could help me, that, that'd be awesome. So here's what I have so far. I'm not gonna sing it. <laughs> just a small town girl living in a lonely world. What did she do next? 
thank you. She took the midnight train going anywhere. We have known each other for about 60 seconds. And yet, it's a story that connected us. Stories have that power. But what you might not have realized before today is that there is one story, just one, that's written on the human heart. That's the story that we're gonna talk about today. Now that story has four main actors. We have an author, we have a hero, we have a love interest, and we have an enemy. So let's talk about those four. So first, an author. What is an author? Now, when you hear me say that, you might be like, Bob, come on. You know what an author is. It, an author is he or she who writes the book. It's he or she who writes the film. Isn't it obvious? And in a sense, you're right. That is what an author does. But an author you might not have realized, can actually be in two places at the same time. An author, when he or she sits down to write the book, to write the film, to write the song, they are above the story. They're controlling the story from beginning to end. It's not difficult for them, right? The clock, clock isn't ticking. The, the guns aren't blazing. It's easy. They're sitting at their desk. The author is above the story, and yet, when that story is finished, and when you have it in your hands, the author is sitting right there with you, because that author, whether it's a movie, a novel, a song, every word was there by intent. They do it on purpose. Why? To deliver a message, to tell a story, to make a point, to make you feel something. That is how an author can be in two places at once. I have a group of friends up in Nashville and I've lived there for five or six years at this point and I just have an awesome, awesome group of guys. I'm so fortunate to, to you know, live with them, do life with them, we go to church together. We have a Bible study small group together and one thing that we have challenged each other to do is to read the Bible cover to cover each year. We've read the Bible in a year, every year, since 2018. I'm not saying that to brag, so please do not take it that way. What I'm saying, the moral of that story is I was shocked to see what the Bible had in store for me. Because there's, there's a bunch, there's 31,000 verses in the Bible. 31,000. So I had my John 3.16 pretty dialed in but beyond that th there was a lot of stuff that I didn't know there was so much depth so much richness that I was not plugging into and then my buddies had this idea hey if God's the best-selling author of all time which he is why don't we read his book why don't we finish it done are the days of throw pillow theology Right? Let's actually understand what this book says. Let's understand what our story is. And so when you do that, year after year, that doesn't mean my small group is all of a sudden theologians or an expert on, on scripture. 
but it does mean we are constantly reminding ourselves of the story cover to cover beginning to end and it was so fun for me as somebody who loves stories I've always been a movie guy big reader I love stories it was really fun for me to see just how many story references are in the Bible and it truly helped me to understand the Bible to see it through a story lens so who's the author of our story it's God right here's how he describes himself Let's look at Isaiah 46. It's one of my favorite verses. I love this. He says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. That's author language. It's exactly what an author does. As somebody who has personally written a book, I can share with you that dreaded blank page oh no what am I going to write today that doesn't happen when an author sits down to write a book a movie a song they know what they want to do there's something on their heart there's something that's keeping them up at night there's something that they got to tell the world about you start with the end and you work your way back I think it's funny I'm sure some of you maybe have heard it. Uh, it's, it was a theologian and a mathematician. This was decades ago, but he actually did the math. He did the math on what are the odds of Jesus fulfilling the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament? What are the odds? I'm sure some of you have heard of this, right? It's the, the silver dollar in Texas thing, where if Jesus just fulfilled eight prophecies, eight the odds of that are so long, it would be like stacking silver dollars, I think he said two feet high, in the state of Texas. You paint one of them red, you throw on a blindfold, and you try to find the one. What are the odds of that? It was like one in a quantillion, if that's even a number. It was, it was a lot, right? You guys have probably heard that before. You can fact check me later. The point is, I actually see it the opposite way. If God is the author of our story, do you want to know the odds of Jesus fulfilling not just eight, but all of the Old Testament prophecies? Do you want to know? 100%. That's the odds. It couldn't not happen. Why? Because God is in control of everything. He declares the end from the beginning. It's not difficult for him. He goes on to say this. This is from Psalm 139. This is King David. He's writing to God. He says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What's he saying? God, before I was even a thing, you saw me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You, every day of my life, my first day, when that day came, you, you know... You knew everything. You knew my hundredth, my thousandth, my ten thousandth. All the days ordained for me were written before one of them came to be. But we got to remember, every story has a hero. Every story has a protagonist. So let's first just define what a hero is. So this is according to Merriam-Webster. 
We have two definitions here. So a hero, first, is an illustrious warrior, a person admired for achievements and noble qualities, one who shows great courage, right? You hear that? You think of a guy in blue tights and a cape, right? Oh, he's a hero, right? Second definition, equally important. A hero is the principal character in a literary or dramatic work, the central figure in an event, period, or movement. So, I wanna open up the floor a little bit. I'm gonna ask for some class participation here. We're gonna play a little, a little game. So I call it, name that hero, all right? And I have to admit, first service did pretty darn well. So no pressure, but I've come up with five heroes, five protagonists from story. And please, just shout it out. We start easy, it gets progressively harder as things go on, but I think, I think we're gonna do just fine. So just shout out when you see it. Who is the hero, who is the protagonist of this story? Indiana Jones, I, I told you we were gonna start easy, right? Did you know the first Indiana Jones, this is a total side note, first Indiana Jones came out in 1981. There's one in theaters right now, it's 42 years ago. It's nuts. He's, he's still got it. <laughs> he's still got it. All right, hero number two. Who is the hero of this story? Okay. There's a world changer who is also a Hunger Games fan. Yes. Katniss Everdeen. Perfect. Hero number three. Who is the hero of this story? Okay, so I'm hearing Braveheart. That is not a hero, that is the movie. William Wallace, thank you, sir, that's right. You see, you see the blue face paint, you're like, oh, yeah, Braveheart. William Wallace, William Wallace. All right, hero number four. Who is the hero, who is the protagonist of this story? I'm not hearing any answers, I see, okay. <laughs> I hear a Tim Tebow. That's hilarious, okay. So I, I think we kind of skew Gator here, but I'm sure there are some, some Knowles in the house as well. Hey, November 25th, right? The next chapter goes down at the swamp. I guess TBD, we'll find out. All right, last one, hero number five. Who is the hero of this story? Okay, so I'm hearing mixed reviews. If you're being honest, you probably do have two answers that are competing in your head. I heard both yourself and Jesus. That is such a human response, that conflict. That is what the Christian deals with every day. Because every day you wake up and you have to decide who will be the hero of my story? Who is the protagonist of my life? Is it Jesus or is it myself? Let's see what the Bible has to say. So this is Paul speaking of Jesus, book of Colossians. He says, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
I think we know where Paul landed on this issue. He went on in the book of Romans. He says, still speaking to Jesus, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And then the words of Jesus himself is from Matthew 16. He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, it's possible that you've heard this verse before, but for those who haven't, let me just clarify. Here's what Jesus is not saying. What he is not saying in this verse is, in order to become a Christian, you have to be a martyr. He is not saying you have to physically, literally die. What is he saying? Let's translate this into story. What Jesus is saying is, for whoever continues to believe that he or she is the main character, is the protagonist of their life, none of this will make sense. They don't get it. And then eventually, to its ultimate bitter end, they will not be with me. But whoever loses his life, whoever bows the knee, whoever realizes I'm not the hero, I am not the protagonist of my life, that person will find it. Whoever keeps his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. So you might be asking yourself, well, if, if we're not the hero, if yourself is not the protagonist, then what are we? Well, the truth is, every hero has a love interest. There's something that the hero is fighting for. And sometimes this can be a championship, this can be a country, right? William Wallace, sons of Scotland, he's fighting for the country, right? But for the most part, the way this will play out, you have a male protagonist fighting for a female love interest. So just to keep things consistent, that's what I'm gonna stick with for the rest of our time. So the love interest is a supporting character. She's there to help us understand more about the hero. You gotta remember, the author is above the story, controlling everything. That author knows exactly what they're doing. So the question is, why do they write in the love interest? What is the love interest's reason for being? Well, there's, there's three. So first, she helps us to understand the hero's purpose. What do I mean by that? Now, just for just to be clear, the love interest is not his purpose. She's not. I know that sounds very romantic. It's kind of like, Romeo, Romeo, where art thou, Romeo, right? She is not his purpose, right? That story falls flat. His purpose is what makes him stand out, what makes him different, what makes him needed. That's the hero's purpose. That, that's why the author is telling the story about him. So the love interest helps us to see that, helps us to see just what makes the hero different. Second, she helps us to see the hero's problem. Now, the hero's problem is not the burning building. The hero's problem is not even the bad guy. Those are problems, like lowercase p problems. They're there, they're not the big one. What is the big problem? The big problem actually lies in her heart. Because you guys know how this story goes, right? 
Guy sees girl. Guy pursues girl. If we're on page 10 of the book, if we're on minute 10 of the movie, what happens next? You're laughing. What, what, do, you, what do you think it is? She rejects him, right? Exactly, yeah. She rejects him, right? You guys, you know, this story is written on the human heart. So what is the hero's problem? It's not just the burning building. His problem is his love is not returned. She doesn't see him. She doesn't believe his intentions are good. Third, the hero's prize. There's something the hero is fighting for, right? The entire movie, the entire book, the hero is fighting for this prize. What the prize does, and this is the reason the author writes it in, it helps us to understand just what the hero sees as beautiful and praiseworthy and sometimes worthy of death. What will he lay his life on the line for? A prize, no doubt, but what is that prize? It helps us to understand more about the hero. Again, it all goes back to the protagonist. So I would ask you, and this should be pretty obvious, what is the hero's prize? A little class participation. What's the hero's prize? Anybody? Did I hear the girl? What's that? Yes? Okay, that's exactly right right? The, the love interest herself. She is the hero's prize. She is the thing that he's been fighting the entire story for. And again, as I was reading the Bible cover to cover with my buddies, I was pleasantly surprised that we as the love interest of God are oftentimes referred to as such. So let's take a look at how God describes us as his wife, bride, lover in scripture. So first, this comes to us from Isaiah. So God's asking rhetorically here. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. He goes on in the book of Jeremiah. He says, return, O backsliding children, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Even at the end of the book, book of Revelation, this is what John writes. He says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We are that bride. We are that love interest. We are the prize. The glorified church, that Ephesians 5 type of church, without any wrinkle, spot, blemish, that helps us to understand what God sees as valuable, what God sees as excellent and praiseworthy. Have you, have you ever thought about that? We reflect God. We reflect the author, to the world. It is our job to be different. We are, the lump, uh, we are the love interest. We are his prize. But fourth, there's an enemy. Every hero has an enemy. Every good guy has a bad guy. Now, you might be tempted to think, when you see these faces, I'm sure you recognize a lot of them, you might be tempted to think 
that bad guys are only bad. And in a sense, you're right. What you're really saying is within the world of the story, the enemy is bad. And that's true. But we can't forget the author. The author is above the story, right? I declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. The story never gets away from an author. He or she knows exactly what they're doing. They are using the enemy. I think about that very famous story of Joseph. It's one of my favorite stories in scripture where he, he has these crazy dreams, right? He shares it with his brothers. He says, hey guys, sorry, I hate to break it to you, but all 11 of you, you're gonna, you're gonna bow down to me. Mom and dad too. They didn't like that. So what do they do? They sold him into slavery, told mom and dad he was dead, left him there for 13 years. All this bad stuff happens. And then we land on that very famous verse. It's Genesis 50, verse 20. I'm sure you guys know it. What does he say? He's looking at his brothers. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. If we translate that to story, here's how it would sound. He's talking to his brothers. He says, you guys tried to be my enemy. You wanted to be my enemy. But our author is in control. Our author, hate to break it to you, was using you. You can't win. How frustrating it must be to be an enemy. You can't win. Why? The author is in control. And so when we think about enemies, knowing that they're not all bad, they're bad within the story, they'd love to be bad. They would love that. But the author is in control. So the question is, how, just how, can they actually serve a story? How, in a sense, are they kind of good to the hero's end? Well, it's the same as the love interest, right? You have the purpose, problem, and prize. So what does the enemy do? How does he interact with these three? So first, he will necessitate the purpose. What does that mean? You don't, you don't really need a hero. You don't need a good guy unless something bad happens, right? That's why you see a conflict so quickly happen in a story. It is the enemy. Have you ever thought about that? It is the enemy who makes the good guy needed. If we're living in the Truman Show and everything's perfect and awesome and every grass edge is squared and you don't, you don't need a hero. You don't need a hero in the Truman Show. You need a hero when an enemy shows up. Second, he will activate the problem. And again, what is the problem? Right? It's not just the burning building. It lies in her heart. Right? She questions, she doubts whether his love is true. That doubt is activated by the enemy. He plants that seed of doubt. Let's say we have Superman and his love interest, Lois Lane. She's caught in a burning building. Superman's nowhere to be found. What is the enemy whispering in her ear? You guys know? He's heard her? Yeah, it's not coming, right? Where's your boy? Where's your hero? I thought he promised you. I thought he said he loved you. He doesn't seem like a superman. 
can you really trust him? And that's exactly what Satan did to us. What does he say in Genesis, right? It's not Lois Lane's ear, it's Eve. They're playing the should I or should I not eat game. And he asks her, did God really say that? do, Do you really think you'll die if you eat this? Come on, you won't die. Now, here's the truth. God is afraid of you. He is. He doesn't want you to eat because if you do, you'll become like him. And God is terrified of that. So I ask you, Eve, can you really trust him? Are his intentions really good? What does an enemy do? He activates the problem. Third, he will elevate the hero's prize. Again, let's go back to Superman and Lois, right? He eventually saves her. Superman isn't not going to save her, right? He eventually, he leaps tall buildings in a single bound and he saves the girl, right? It is in that act that Lois, or whatever love interest we're talking about, actually sees him. It's in her moment of peril where she says, I need a hero. I thought I was all set. I thought I was fine in the first 10 pages of this book. Now I know I am in desperate need of a rescuer. And who does that? It's the enemy that brings that about. Have you guys, have you guys realized that? That's why, that's why an author will write an enemy in. A story is about the hero. It's about the protagonist. The enemy will elevate the hero's prize because eventually that love interest, the one who's been saved, she is madly in love with him. Now she sees him for who he is. And again, if we're talking about enemies, what does scripture say? Who is our enemy? So this is from 1 John. He writes, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, listen to this. Sounds very purpose-esque. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy the enemy. Jesus came to make all things right. So, now that we've laid out the, the main actors in our story, let's talk about the story itself. There is a very specific story that's written on the human heart. That story is the gospel. But there's one problem with that. We oftentimes get the gospel wrong. Here's how the gospel usually sounds. Hey, hey friend, did you know that Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for your sins? And if, if you would just believe in him, then you'll be with him forever and you'll avoid hell and yet you'll, you'll be in heaven. How does that sound? And I don't want to belittle that. It is close. 100% it is close. But ladies and gentlemen, I hate to break it to you, that is not the gospel. That's not. That is a weak, watered-down version. It's something I like to call the gospel. That is the gospel message. Now, you might be wondering, 
Bob, what is the Ospel? What is this Ospel you speak of? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Earlier, we went to Merriam-Webster. This is straight from the dictionary of Merriam-Wheatley. The Ospel, of course, is a noun, two syllables, Ospel. Here's the definition. It is the Gospel without the beginning. Ladies and gentlemen, the Ospel message does not work. The Ospel message does not convict. The Ospel does not save. Have you ever wondered why? We said at the beginning, humans are a storytelling species. When you tell the Ospel, you are violating the law of story. You're forgetting the beginning. That's why we don't care. Nobody cares about the Ospel. The Ospel doesn't save. Here's the law that we're violating. This is a quote from a book called Poetics. So Poetics was written by Aristotle. This was 2,400 years ago in the fourth century BC. Now Aristotle's Poetics is seen by many as, quote, the Bible of storytelling. If you go to Hollywood and you speak to any screenwriter who's worth his salt, they will have read Aristotle's Poetics. And here's what Aristotle says. Here's how you create a great story. A story should have for its subject a single action, whole and complete, with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It will thus resemble a living organism in all its unity and produce the pleasure proper to it. Beginning, middle, end should be straightforward. And yet, Ospel, what are we doing? So let's talk about the story that's written on the human heart. What is that story? Well, we begin in paradise. We also end in paradise, right? Start in a good place, end in a good place. What happens in between? Well, there's a conflict. Something bad happens and usually quickly, right? Bad guy jumps on the scene, now we have a story on our hands. And in this love story, hero, love interest, enemy, what happens next? She doubts his love. She doubts his intentions. After that, he proves it. There's something that happens. He jumps in front of the train. He, he stands up to the bully, whatever it is. And she's like, whoa, this is my guy. This is my guy. This is the, he, he is a hero. His intentions for me are good. What happens after that? Now she's head over heels and they're joined together. Usually, I mean, how many, how many movies end in a wedding, right? We love this story. Why? It is written on the human heart. And you might be asking, why do we not get bored of this? If you look at this narrative, just some examples off the top of our heads. This is The Matrix, this is The Lion King, this is Braveheart, this is Shrek, this is Avatar, this is, this is, this is, this is. Why do we not get bored? Why does it still work? I'll tell you why. That right there, that little red box. And you might be wondering, well, I, I thought the story was over. What, what happens after paradise? Well, let's go back to Aristotle. What does he say? A story should have for its subject, a single action, dot, dot, dot. What else should it do? It should produce the pleasure proper to it. We tell stories to enjoy. 
So what happens after paradise? What happens after the story ends? We enjoy it. It's the pleasure proper to it. So again, when we go to the story, the story that's written on the human heart, is it any wonder that the gospel follows that narrative? What happened in the gospel? Let's lay it out. We began in paradise, the garden. There was a conflict, the fall. Then she doubts it, right? The nation of Israel, they're in the wilderness. Can we really trust this God? Sure, the 10 plagues were awesome. We don't really know him that well. Can we trust him? And honestly, this even goes on in our own hearts. Some of you might be in that state today. You are doubting God's love for you. We've all been there. Every true believer goes through it. It's the gospel. What happens next? The cross. The most obvious example of him proving, the hero proving his love, right? And just in case the last 2,000 years have lulled you to sleep, this is where we are today. Our story is not over. It's not. So this thought of, oh, well, I can just kind of, you know, live my, I'll just live the American dream and, you know, pay my taxes and I'll be fine. And yeah, I got the Christian box checked. No, we are living this story. This story is not over. We have, we have a very real enemy who hates us. You guys realize that? This is real. This is happening right now. What happens next? We're here in the Church of Hope. Have you ever wondered what your hope is in? It's in this. It's in the wedding, the union, being joined to him. That's what you're longing for. I know there's some people in here that maybe aren't married. There's certainly a lot that are. Even if you are married, and husbands, I'm sure your wives are amazing. Wives, I'm sure your husbands are decent. <laughs> you know? Hey. Even if you've had a wedding here on earth, your heart is longing for that one. Being joined with him. Your heart is longing for the gospel the story that we're living. And what happens after the wedding? You guys know. Same as any story, we end in paradise. That's what we want. Every social agenda, every politician's promise, what are they promising? Paradise. And I'm not trying to vilify them, and we shouldn't either. How human is that to want to live in paradise? The problem is we are not the author. We are not. We will have our paradise. We will. It's going to be done his way. So before we end our time here, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to finish our time in worship. And as they make their way up to the stage, again, what, what was my goal? What is our goal today? To understand the gospel. This is a simple message and an awesome story. I want you to remember the story. So, what is the gospel according to Paul? And you'll notice the beginning, the middle, and the end. There was no gospel with the Apostle Paul. He starts, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, 
Next. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The middle. Here's the end. If, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in the church of hope. Should be pretty clear. If you guys bring anything into this house, it is hope. Let's remember what our hope is in, right? It's not just in the job, the raise, the relationship. Those are, those are small things. Those are fleeting. What I'm going to ask you to do, when you go home today, do a heart check. Those longings of your heart, it's not just for those small fleeting things, and those things are good. There's something deeper. The truth is, the reason why you love those stories, The Lion King, The Matrix, Braveheart, on down the line, the reason is you want to live that story. You want to live it. You want to live in a world where there's an author who loves you, who's in complete control. There's a hero that is worthy of praise. There's an enemy that will be destroyed forever. That is the cry of your heart. That is the gospel. And let's not forget, why is God doing this? That little red box. That little red box, that's why he's doing this. That's why he's telling this story. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, when asked, what is the chief end of man? Why do we exist? It gives two reasons. It says, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There are some people in this room who are, you're stressing about Christianity. You're stressing about your relationship with God. You think it's like, there's some big scoreboard in the sky. That's not how it works. God wants you to know this story. That's it. God is telling a good story that you were born into. Remember the story. So when our story is over and we come to that day when we're finally in heaven with him, we'll begin a new story. And on that day, let it be said of us, as it says in the book of Revelation, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Thank you. Being together in this space today is really good. If you've never begun a relationship with Jesus, I'd like to invite you today to start following Jesus. It's not about your behavior. It's not about your church attendance. It's about the reality that Jesus is for you. God's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. Would you right now pray this prayer with me? Hey God, it's me. I've sinned and I know it. And I can't fix me. But today, I receive you, Jesus, as my Savior. I believe that you died on that cross for me and that you were buried for three days and then you became alive again. And I invite you into my life to guide me and direct me all the rest of the days of my life. 
And with that prayer, my friend, welcome to God's family. I'd like to continue our friendship. If you would email me, pastor at hopeinocala.com. I'll follow up with you and together we'll celebrate Jesus in your life. Peace.